Turn with me, if you will, if you will, to Genesis chapter 39. Man, my hope, as I told y'all, we can get through this before the summer comes to us. But every time you turn to one of these chapters, it is just so rich with stuff. This one's full. And so we're going to do our best to, to work through it, to get it all. I feel like I'm going to probably be scrambling tonight just to try to touch base on everything that's in Genesis 39. Um, what an incredible, incredible chapter. And so uh, <clears throat> as we look at Genesis 39, we want to put it in the context. Remember, we were introduced to Joseph uh, really as a character back in chapter 37. We were introduced to him as the one whom his father loved. His father gave him the nice coat. Joseph had the ability to, uh, or had some dreams that the Lord gave him that he understood. And he bragged about those dreams to his brothers. His brothers didn't like the coat or the dreams and didn't like the fact that his father cared for him more than the others. So they devised a plan to to kill him, which turned into let's sell him into slavery, right? And so they devised that plan with Judah leading kind of the brothers in that plan. And so they sold him into slavery there in chapter 37, uh, verse 28. Sold him to the Ishmaelites um, and they took Joseph to Egypt. And so when we get to chapter 38, in fact, at the end of chapter 37, it tells us uh, that when the father hears, um, Israel or Jacob hears about the son uh, thinking he is dead, they tell him that uh, the father wept for him. Meanwhile, verse 36, kind of a, a statement of narrative, kind of like the narrator telling us what happened. Meanwhile, uh, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So it tells us who Potiphar is. It tells us that Joseph has been sold into slavery to Potiphar's house, this high-ranking official, uh, the leader of the army in Egypt, if you will, high-ranking official in Egypt. That's where he is. Now we take that break in chapter 38 where he discusses Judah and the situation with Judah. We talked about that last week. Hopefully y'all can remember. We got to the end of that with the birth of Judah's children through Tamar. And, and we, we touched on that. And then now in chapter 39, it's going to come back to Joseph. Now we talked about why 38 was there, not just a parenthetical Little, little chapter just saying, hey, here's what happened to Judah, putting it in context of all of scripture, putting it in context of the genealogy that is coming, putting it in context of all of those things. We've discussed that. But you also saw the character. So at the end of chapter 37, you saw Judah who took charge over the brothers and sold his brother Joseph into slavery, saw his character then you see how his character plays out in chapter 38 whenever he doesn't do what he's supposed to do and he doesn't uh, remain faithful to the promises of God and his daughter-in-law has to take matters in her own hands and she's more righteous than I am, he says. Y'all saw all that. Y'all remember all that, right? We got all that? You saw the nature of Judah and now you come back and we're going to look at the character of Joseph up against it. 
And so when you get to 39, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So it's connecting us back to the end of chapter 37, saying while that was going on with Judah, now this is what's happened with Joseph, right? And so now it's picking us back up with Joseph. And let me say, as we've gone through Genesis, one of the things I've mentioned over and over again is how Genesis tells the truth, right? It's God's word, it is true. And so it does not hide the flaws of the characters involved. So if you're thinking about Moses, who's writing this, under the inspiration of the Spirit, obviously not lying, telling the truth. But what helps us in this, maybe, is to think about the fact, if you were trying to, to write a story of how your religion or your people began, and you were making it up as you go, you probably wouldn't create the founders of this with so many flaws that you would have. It, it, it proves the testimony of it, right? It proves the nature of this. This is a real people dealing with this and how we talk about over and over again that the main character of scripture is God. He's doing this and he's working through fallen people to bring about his ultimate purposes. And so when we saw it, we saw Abraham, he messed up not once, but twice with two major faux pas, right? We saw Isaac, he messed up and how he struggled with his sons and the relationships and other things. We saw how, how Jacob was a deceiver and he did all these other things and he got out deceived and he did his stuff. We've seen all of that. And then we get to the sons and we saw how Simeon and Levi didn't handle things real well. They basically deceived some people and then they killed them all. And then we saw how Joseph, uh, Judah led the brothers to sell another brother into slavery. We hadn't seen the best of characters in this. You know what I'm saying? Like we're seeing some flaws here. Now we'll talk about that because in some ways God redeems them and shows us in many ways, completely redeems them and shows us how he uses them. But then we get to Joseph and Joseph becomes a breath of fresh air for us. Here finally is someone who was faithful. Finally, someone who, who does what is right. And that can be seen clearly in Genesis chapter 39. It can be seen clearly in Genesis 39. And so when you get to Genesis 39, probably a story that many of you have heard uh, throughout your life. But you get to the story of Joseph in the house of Potiphar. Now, there's some things let's just walk through. I'm going to do my best to point out all of this. There's so much stuff here in understanding it says, it tells us, it gives us that context. Joseph is there having been sold into slavery into Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the, the captain of the guard, one of the leaders in Egypt. And Joseph is there in his house. Verse 2, it starts out with a very important statement. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. In fact, this chapter is going to repeat that statement several times to make a point. It begins with that in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. It's going to end with that in verse 23, the Lord was with him. The Lord's going to be with Joseph in slavery in Potiphar's house, right, as a servant. And he's going to be with Joseph in prison uh, whenever he's thrown in prison. In other words, the Lord is with him on all of these situations. The Lord was with Joseph. It's a testimony for us 
that even in the worst kind of situation, Joseph is in it. His brothers lied. His dad thinks he's dead. The only person who really wants to look for him thinks he's dead, right? His dad thinks he's dead. He's not in his hometown anymore. He's in Egypt. He's not amongst friends. He's now sold into slavery. He is in a bad place. But even in his bad place, the Lord was with him, right? It's like David says when David is in the cave running for his life from Saul, who's trying to kill him. He says, even if I were to lay in Sheol, my God is with me there, right? God never leaves or deserts his people. And here is Joseph and the Lord is with him, even in slavery, even in bondage. And let's see what happens in this. The Lord was with him and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. What's amazing about this is you've got an Egyptian, right? And, and at this point, you've got to remember, as we look at this, this Jewish nation is in its infancy, right? I mean, you, you just had Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, and you have the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That God will soon be known in Egypt. And it's not just going to be known through the, uh, through the Israelites who were in bondage of captivity when Moses comes. How was that God first known in Egypt? Through the testimony of Joseph. Through Joseph's testimony. Here is a man who's a pagan, who's got no idea about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's got no idea about any of that. But when he sees Joseph, he sees how successful he is. What does it say? He recognized that his God was with him. That the Lord was with him. Even a stranger to this God, even somebody who didn't know it, he recognized that Joseph has somebody on his side who is greater. And so the, here it says, his master saw that the Lord was with him. And not only that, his master saw that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. The credit for the success of Joseph is not given to who? Joseph. It's given to God. Man, what a lesson that is for us, right? What happens to us in the success of our life, all glory goes to God. And ultimately, that's what we see here. The master recognizes this guy has got a God that he follows and his God is with him. And not only that, he's got a God that he follows and he's with him. That God is causing him to succeed. So even Joseph's life becomes a testimony to the pagans around him of the good God that he serves, of the good God that he serves. Man, that should be the case for every single one of us. It should be the case for all of us that our lives become a testimony of the good God that we serve. Now, don't think that Joseph's just sitting there living his life and that man figures all that out, right? Don't think that Potiphar goes, Man, this guy, he, Joseph hadn't said a word, but this guy has, ha, is looking at Joseph and that guy figures out, Potiphar figures out, oh, he's got a God somewhere, that God's really good to him because he's causing success. I guarantee you my point is Joseph's talking about who he follows and who he serves, right? He's talking about the one that he loves and he's living it out before him so that Potiphar recognizes it. Potiphar recognizes it. And so ultimately, that's what it says. Here, this man has come successful. Now, this word success is important for us 
worldly looking at things. Joseph's successful within the house of Potiphar, but as we look at it, it doesn't seem like he's successful. But let me remind you of what true success is, all right? If you turn with me real quick to Joshua chapter one. In Joshua chapter one, Joshua, the, the, the baton is being passed. Moses is dead. Joshua is hearing from the Lord and the Lord is commissioning Joshua, right? In Joshua chapter one. And what does he say? He tells him everything that he's done. The Lord testifies to all this. In verse six, he says, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to fathers give him. Joshua is about to take the Israelites into the promised land. And so be strong and courageous. I'm with you, in other words. Be strong and courageous for all shall cause people to inherit the land. Verse seven, only be strong and very courageous. This is important. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Be strong and courageous and be obedient. Does everybody get that? Be obedient to my word. The word that Moses, I gave Moses, Moses gave to you. Be strong, be courageous, be obedient to my word. In fact, he goes on to say, do not turn from it, the word of God. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have what? Good success wherever you go. The book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Does everybody get what he's saying? Success biblically is defined by faithfulness. The world is going to define success radically different than that, aren't they? Success is not going to be found in the world in just faithfulness. Success is going to be found in how much money you can make, how much position you can gain, how many things you can pull under yourself, what authority you may have around you. Success is going to be found in how many followers you have or friends on Facebook, right? Y'all looking at that. People think that's what success is. But the Lord says that has nothing really to do with what true success is. True success is being faithful to God's word. Being faithful to God's word. Now, again, watch the story of Joseph. That joker is going to be faithful and it's going to wind up putting him in prison. And God says, that's success. That's success. Because you've been faithful to me. Because right now, what we have to know is the measurement that God looks at us is not our bottom line wealth on this planet. The measurement God looks at us is our faithfulness to his word and his promises. That's what he looks at us. And so success is only truly in God's eyes, not the world's eyes. And so success is there. So here's, here's Joseph. He is successful. Why? Because he's faithful. Now let's show how he's faithful. So Joseph found favor because of, because of his testimony, because of the success that he has at his hands, all attributed to the Lord, all because of the Lord's with him. Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house. This is Potiphar. He's helping out Potiphar. Potiphar makes him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Now, you've got to have some serious trust for somebody to put him in charge of everything you got, right? One of your slaves, one of your servants, you bought him for 30 shekels or whatever, and now he's in charge of everything. And so he's trusting him. 
So he puts him in charge of all that he has. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all they had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So God was faithful, whatever Joseph. Now, where did we see this before? Y'all remember where we saw this before? We saw this with Jacob, right? In Laban's, in Laban's uh, custody, if you will, Jacob was successful. He caused Laban's wealth to rise while Laban didn't want to give him up. And so here you see the same thing. God is blessing the work of Joseph's hands. He's blessing it because Joseph is faithful. He's because he's faithful. So all he had for Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had, all he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but eating. Man, was that not a blessing, right? All he's worried about is the food he ate. He's sitting there going, what am I going to do today? Hmm, let me think what I want for breakfast, right? And being an Egyptian, you know, he liked bacon. And so ultimately, ultimately, obviously this is what he's doing. He's just simply concerned about what he wants to eat. Isn't that the good life, right? Isn't that the good life? That's what y'all been waiting on in retirement. Just wake up. Let me see if I want my coffee today. What time do I want it? Where do I want it? That's the good life. Here's Potiphar living it up now because he's got Joseph in charge, trusting him to run everything, and all he's worried about is food. All he's worried about is food. What's going to eat next? Now, Joseph was handsome in form. He was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. She's not talking about, let's sit down and watch a movie. <laughs> All right? It's not what she's saying. She's going a little bit, there's a little bit more than that in telling this. The, the, the passage is trying to help us. He's handsome. He's young. He's there. He's in the house. Time and opportunity is all you really need, right? And so now you got the time, we got the opportunity, and Potiphar's wife, that's what we'll call her, Potiphar's wife says, lie with me. Joseph is now in a position. Now, now think about this. We, we talked about this last week a little bit. Judah had everything to lose. He had sons. He had everything. He, he should have done what was right, right? He should have done what was right because he had everything to lose. Joseph has nothing to lose. Judah had everything to lose and he still did what was wrong. Joseph has nothing to lose here. Joseph is sitting here and you, you may think, well, he can lose Potiphar's favor. Well, my goodness, right? If, if he lays with his wife, his wife's going to protect him. I mean, what, why not? This is a perfect situation for him. He's got nothing to lose, but keep going. What does he say? Behold. Joseph is going to do something first that's very important. From the very beginning, when she says, lie with me, he refuses and says no to his master's wife. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house but food. That's not in there, but I'm just going back. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am. If Joseph says to do something, it's got the same weight behind it as Potiphar. He's not greater than I am. Nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you are his wife. 
Joseph does something that's very important. He establishes his position from the beginning. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't say, well, you're pretty too. He doesn't say, you know, we ought not do that. He doesn't kind of give any kind of side glance from the very start. He says, no, I'm not doing that because of this. Your husband trusts me and he put me in charge and I have a duty to him to do what is right and do only what is right and you're the only one I can't touch. By the way, do y'all recognize what this sounds like a little bit in some ways? Just a little bit? Doesn't this remind you of the situation in the garden when temptation came to Adam and Eve? There's only one thing you can't touch, right? There's only one thing and, 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 and they fall for that trick. But Joseph says, no, there's one thing I can't touch and that's you. And I'm not going to forsake that, right? So no. Joseph makes his position known from the beginning. It would do all of us well when temptation comes to clearly from the start make your stand from the beginning. Don't flirt with it. Don't act like I can work my way out of it. Don't try to weasel around it. Don't try to compromise in any conversation with it. When temptation comes, you make your stand from the start. The easiest time, y'all hear me when I say this, the easiest time to conquer any temptation that comes to you is right at the beginning. The longer you wait for it. I normally don't get loud on Wednesday night, but I just did right there. Did y'all notice that? It's kind of preachy. The longer you flirt with temptation, the harder it is for you to kill it. The longer you flirt with it, the harder it is to kill it. That's what temptation does. In fact, the temptation can be small. But if you compromise with that small temptation, that little temptation doesn't change in its nature, but gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier with every moment you don't kill it. Romans chapter 8. If we're a child of God, then the Spirit of God is within us, right? And if the Spirit of God is within us, what does he say? Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put them to death. If you don't kill sin, sin is going to kill you. And Joseph makes a stand here from the start. Let it be known to you, Potiphar's wife. I don't know if that's what he called her. But let it be known to you, Potiphar's wife, I'm not doing it. I refuse. I don't want to be any part of this. Man, if we could learn that. But listen to what he says next. How then, so he gives his speech and he comes up with a question to her. How then can I do this great wickedness, right? In other words, he's saying, how can I do it? A man blessed by God, a man who's following after the Lord, a man who's, who is clearly the Lord is with me. He notices, how can I do this? And that should be the question all of us come to, right? If we're a child of God who've been purchased by Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who died on the cross for our sins, it's like the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, how can we, knowing what Christ has done, how can we willingly continue in sin? How can you keep going in it knowing what it is and knowing what you're doing? And so that's exactly what, what Joseph's saying. How can I, who's been blessed by God and received his favor, how can I do this action, right? To do something is an action. How can I do this action which is wicked? But notice what Joseph says. Do this action of wick, great wickedness and sin against who? He didn't say Potiphar. He didn't say, I didn't, how can I sin against my master in this house? How can I turn on? He says, how can I do this great wickedness? 
This great wickedness. He didn't act like this was anything small. This is great. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If I were to do this, it's greater than me and you lying together, right? And we need to know that all of our actions have way more meaning behind them than we sometimes want to attribute them. All of our actions have way more weight to them than we want to give them. We like to make our actions small. This only affects me. This only has to do with me. It's only something that I'm dealing with, whether it's in private or public. It's only me. It's only like I can handle this. I can deal with this. We like to make it small. Joseph does not make this action small in any way. This is great wickedness. And this is sin, not against Potiphar. Any sin is against God who sustains me, made me, keeps me, holds me, protects me, and, and follows after me in all things, right? Blesses me. So any sin is against him. Ultimately, we know this is the case. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 9 whenever Saul, who was serving up the papers on Christians in persecution, was on his way to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him, and what did Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. Saul's persecuting other Christians. But Jesus is identifying with them, saying, those are my people. And you do something against them, you're doing it against me. So it is here for Joseph. Sin is a direct assault, not on others, while it affects others and it is against others. But it's a direct assault on the holiness of God for his people. And so he does not make a light thing. He comes up front and states his position, and then he does not make the sin small. He understands its ramifications, how big this is, how big this is. Surely you know what Potiphar's wife's saying. Oh, come on, it's just one time, right? It's just one. He's not going to know. All he's worried about is where his grapes are going to come from for the next meal. All he's worried about is what he may eat. He doesn't even pay me any attention. Surely that's my problem. He doesn't even watch after me or fulfill my needs. You can hear these kind of things, right? All things that we hear to try to justify a sin that we may commit. All these things we try to do to try to justify what we do. Surely that. And, and, and Joseph is cutting it off saying, no, this is a sin against God. This is a sin against God. Oh, if all of us could see sin that way. One of the great problems I think we have nowadays, and it may have been a problem forever, so I'm not trying to make nowadays greater than other days. What I am trying to say is, what I know is one of the great problems we have now is that people do not fear God enough. They do not understand what sin really means. They do not understand how disastrous it really is and what it can do to not only you but your family and all those around you they don't understand it they try to make it small they try to make it little and they don't truly fear God in fact I know it's not just a problem nowadays because this is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 12 in John chapter 12 I'll turn there you don't have to but I mean if you want to you know do it so you can prove me right that's fine. In John chapter 12, Jesus is, has entered into to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has begun. And he's talking about the unbelief of people. 
And he says, when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, speaking of Christ, and spoke of him. Y'all know Isaiah 6, seeing the glory of Christ. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Now listen to this. Many believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43 is so important. Chapter 12 of John. Here's why. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Really, it comes down to what is it, not just that we fear, what is it that we love? Do we love the glory that comes from God and His attention only? Or do we like it when we get praise of men? So the question does come to fear. Do we truly fear God? Are we scared of what men may do to us? Jesus is saying their problem in my day, even though he did so many signs and so many miracles and so many other things, they still don't believe because they're scared of the Pharisees. I've done all these things, but they fear man more than they fear me. And that's exactly what Joseph's saying right here. I'm not worried one bit about what Potiphar will do to me. I'm not worried about what you're going to do, for, do to me, Potiphar's wife. I'm not concerned one bit about that. What I am concerned about is what the Lord would do if I forsook him. And my friends, I don't care if you're in public. I don't care if you're in private. What will keep you, what will keep you from temptation what will help you crush sin to death in your life is when you think, what does God think about this? And that becomes the most important question to you. That's exactly what Joseph said. So he tells her this, but she is relentless. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Just think about this temptation for Joseph, if you will. And I want to dive into this because I think this is helpful for us. We know that the word, the flesh, the devil, all of these things are coming after us as believers. The scripture teaches us this. And, 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 and so we know temptation is going to come. It comes to us all the time. And in fact, I believe the more you are trying to live for the Lord and seek after him, the greater the temptation does come, right? The, Lord, uh, the devil pursues those he doesn't have. Y'all ever heard that story? And so ultimately this temptation is coming. And so it's coming. So look at the temptation of Joseph. Here, the temptation comes at a time when he's alone with a woman. Time and opportunity is there. The temptation comes whenever he is not at home. He's been forsaken by his whole family. He's, he's alone and forsaken. The temptation comes with with an important woman. He knows if he keeps rejecting Potiphar's wife, it's not going to go well for him. This woman's got some clout, right? She can destroy him with a notice and she will try. He knows all of this is happening. The temptation is only getting stronger. 
only getting stronger. And this temptation is strong. It's a sexual sin temptation. And by all means, the Bible speaks so harshly against sexual sin because sexual sin is where so many of us fail oftentimes. And it's got a natural pull to us. But just because, and hear me when I say this, just because it is natural, it does not mean it is godly. Does that make sense, everybody? Our nature is sinful. And so we cannot blame our nature for our sin. The scripture will not allow it. Just say, well, it's my natural feeling and tendency. Well, that doesn't mean it's godly. Apply that to sexual sin in our world nowadays. You cannot make the argument that this is just naturally how I am and how I feel. And that makes it okay. Because the Bible teaches us just because it's natural, that does not make it godly. Does not make it godly. And so here you have this strong temptation. So turn with me to James chapter one real quick. James chapter one. Let's make some things clear about temptation. I thought I put a little marker on it. I'll get to it. Hold on. James is writing, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Ultimately, when temptation comes, the Bible makes it clear. Temptation is not coming from the Lord. It's our own desires within us. And the devil is as smart as they come because he knows what? Let's work on your own desires. Let's hit them where they are the uh, uh, easiest targets in this. Let's go after them. And so whatever temptation comes to us is not coming from God. It's coming from our own fleshly hearts and desires. And the devil's playing on those things. But then how does God take care of us? Look at verse chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I talked about this, this verse uh, a few weeks ago in the sermon talking about, you know, the things we say that aren't really in the Bible. Y'all remember that part? I know y'all remember every sermon I've ever preached and everything. But I said one of them is that God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, that's not what it says. God oftentimes gives us more than we can handle. In fact, he says we're strongest whenever we're weakest. Whenever we cannot handle it and we depend on him is when we truly are at our strength, right? And so God wants us to lean on him. So he oftentimes gives us more than we can handle. We have to lean on him to make it through it. And so ultimately, that's not what it says. What it says is, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, don't you say that, man, I've just been tempted more than anybody else. You know what I'm saying? You can't use that excuse either. Don't you say, it's just been hard, right? God's not tempting you. It's your own desires that tempt you. Satan playing along with those desires to get you to fall. And you can't say that your temptation is greater than anybody else's temptation. It's just like everybody else. It's not common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Here's where God steps in. Even though temptation does not come from him, he will make sure that you're not tempted beyond what you can handle. Does that make sense, everybody? So in other words, if you're a child of God, you cannot blame God for putting more on you than you can handle because he's not going to do that, the scripture says. 
In other words, what I'm trying to tell y'all is you can do it. With the Spirit of God living inside of you, when temptation comes, you can overcome it. You've got more in you than the world can throw at you. Does that make sense, everybody? When the Spirit of God's there, you've got more in you. So he says, no temptation to come. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Not only is he not going to give you more than you can handle in temptation, he's also going to give you a way out. He's also going to give you a way out. What was Joseph's way out? Then one day, verse 11, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house were in the house. Uh oh, no accountability. She called him by his garment saying, lie with me. But listen to how this happened. Y'all know how this happened, right? He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. The Bible says God will not tempt you more than you can handle. Joseph handled this. God's always going to give you a way out. What was Joseph's way out? I tell you what, you can have these clothes, right? I'm going to run naked through that door right there so you don't touch me. Sometimes the way out isn't some easy little way. Sometimes it's not laying in front of you and you just got to step in it. Sometimes the way out of sin is you taking matters into your own hand and running. Does that make sense to everybody? Joseph had a way out and he took it. It was the door and he ran. And what was more important to Joseph was not the clothes that he was wearing. Running out naked in that embarrassment would have been is much less than the embarrassment of sinning against the holy and righteous God. So Joseph fled and he ran. And it's going to cost him. Because when he did, he left his garment in her hand. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew, a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me, fled and got out of the house. She is a what? Liar. You cannot, and just let me hear you say this. Joseph's deed, right? His duty was to do everything he could to flee temptation and sin. That's what he did. He cannot take care or even worry about what people say about it. We cannot control what people say, can we? We cannot control what people say. But you know who knew the truth? God did. The only one that really mattered. Joseph took off and he can't take care of what Potiphar's wife's going to say. He can't deal with that. He can't even worry about that. His first concern is to do what God has called him to do. So when temptation came, he fled. He fled. Now Joseph's testimony here becomes important for us because at every time temptation comes, he gets out. He denies it. He moves away. He doesn't flirt with it. He doesn't compromise. He gets rid of it out of his situation. And finally, he does it in such a way where he's running naked through the streets. Then she laid her gar his garment by her until her master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. 
And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. Oftentimes we talk about the victorious Christian life, right? When in reality, victory sometimes looks like you're in prison. Victory in the Christian life will soon be realized, but it will only ultimately finally be realized when we were with him in heaven. Does everybody understand that? On this earth, oftentimes faithfulness will lead us into difficult spots. But again, what does it say? The Lord was with him. And it was better for Joseph to remain in the presence and the will of the Lord and his faithfulness and be in prison on earth than to lay with Potiphar's wife and turn his back on a glorious God, right? And ultimately, sometimes we're in prison, sometimes we're at the head of the household, sometimes we're in other places, but what's most important is that the Lord is with us. The Lord is with Joseph, showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge. Y'all get this? This man has risen to power everywhere he goes, right? Why? Because the Lord's with him and he's faithful. He put him in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Y'all know what he was worried about? What he was going to eat today, right? Joseph's the guy you want working for you because he's taking care of everything. All you got to do is worry about what you're going to eat. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord made it succeed. I'm going to read as we close out. Time is up. I'm going to read from 1 John. 1 John is a book that I say is where the, like the rubber hits the road. You know what I'm saying? John is trying to separate the, uh, uh, the faithful from the unfaithful. He's, he's trying in this book, and I say successful, in calling out hypocrisy, calling out those who think they believe. He says in this book things like, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, you're a liar. That makes it pretty clear. Does everybody get what I'm saying here? You say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. John says stuff like that. And so he wants us to be clear about what God thinks about sin and what this means. And so this is what he says in John, 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, as I'm reading this, think of Joseph in the background. Right? The world doesn't understand. Potiphar's wife doesn't get it. Why won't he lie with her? She's got power. She's got influence. She's got, the world doesn't understand this stuff. 
But we do, why? Because we have a hope that causes us to do what? Purify ourselves. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, which means you're not a following the word of God. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That's Jesus. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Pretty clear, right? Now you say, Josh, that sounds like we have to be perfect. Oh, what it means is we have to seek to be perfect, be holy because he is holy. And notice that John does something very, very uh, interesting here. He does not say no one who sins is born of God, right? Does everybody understand what I'm saying? He says no one who makes a practice of sinning, that the child of God's practice is to seek after righteousness and holiness, to run and flee from sin, to flee temptation. Does that mean sin comes to us every once in a while? Yes. Does that mean we fall into it every once in a while? Sure we do. We're still wrestling with that natural versus godly sometimes. And we fall into it. But remember what John tells us. That if we sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Remember that? And so don't keep on making a practice of sinning. He will forgive you of your sins. The one who makes a practice of it is demonstrating where their loyalty lies. And Joseph becomes a clear example of this. He was a servant in Potiphar's house, but his loyalty lied, not with his wife, come and lie with me, but his loyalty lied with his father in heaven, who he sought after glory. Your testimony, your life, your actions testify to where your loyalty is as well. That's what John is saying in 1 John. Are you a child of God? Or you're a child of the devil. Let's look at your life, in other words. Joseph becomes a testimony of this. And I pray that everybody in this room can look at us and say, I know the Lord is with them. I know the Lord is with them because look at where their loyalty is as they seek after him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. You are good to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Joseph and his testimony. More than all of that, thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who came to redeem our sinful selves so that we can be with him. Now let us, help us, give us the strength of the power of your spirit to put sin to death, to fight temptation, knowing that you have always given us a way out so there's no excuse to fight temptation, Father, for the glory of Christ Jesus. And may the world see our loyalty is with our Savior and King. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.